In this first episode of Teched Out, Jeff and I discussed the internet at large, proliferation of web browsers, as well as how JavaScript became the dominant language of the web. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? I guess good. maybe not good morning. It could maybe be not. maybe whenever <laughs> they're listening to this. Uh, Welcome. Uh, we're coming to you from Full Stack Academy of Code. Uh, we're in New York. We're in New York. The New York campus. The New York campus. We have a campus in Chicago as well. We are a, a coding boot camp. Uh, we're two instructors. We are not a coding boot We're two instructors from a coding boot camp. Um, my name is Corey Greenwald. I'm Jeff Bass. Uh, and we're here just to talk to you and kind of uh, maybe start off by giving a little bit of a background on uh, Full Stack Academy and then just dive right into kind of uh, big topics, things that maybe uh, seem a little bit too technical and try to break them down in the most non-technical way possible. Um, we're going to be going through things that are not coding related topics all the way through, um, you know, some, some actual adjacent code kind of topics. Um, talk a little bit about JavaScript, kind of the language we use here, and some other facets. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what Full Stack Academy is and kind of Sure. There, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess to say a little bit more about the the idea behind this podcast, I was thinking when I was uh, I was a student here at Full Stack Academy, like I, you were too. I as think. was I <laughs> at one point uh, back <laughs> yeah, in the day. Way back when. Uh, and I just remember wishing that this existed when I was a student. Something that was about technical stuff, but really didn't dive too deep into the weeds. You know, touched on a lot of different things, but at an approachable level. Um, they're great podcasts out there that deal with JavaScript specifically and coding and learning to code, but I, I think that there was an opening, a little niche that hopefully we can start to fill here. And hopefully we'll just start to unravel some of the mysteries of the web um, and just by talking to you all. Yeah, um, we are a full stack boot camp, which is also called full stack. Yeah. Academy. Maybe we should dive into like where that comes from, the yeah. term like full stack. Sure. You know? Um, where does it come from, Corey? Let's start with the internet, I guess. Uh, the internet, um, and that's that's it. Uh, no, okay. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the internet. Um, I think it's it's kind of like weird. It's like all of us every day at some point. Most of us, I shouldn't say all of us. Most of us open up a web browser at some point, type into this fancy bar at the top of the page, like some, you know, address sort of thing. And then we click enter, and then all of a sudden we have this like web page in front of us, and that whole thing sort of feels magical. Um, but at the end of the day, it's no different than like writing a letter and sending a message, and then having a way to view that message or read that message. And I think that that's sort of the confusion that comes around um, uh, the internet is sort of like thinking like, oh, it's this crazy uh, concept. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a pretty it's a pretty crazy concept, um, but. I think it's, it's, it's interesting to note that all you're doing when you actually write something in that bar is saying to the rest of the world, I am looking for something. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, I am looking for something. It's a request, we call it, a request for some kind of information. Please give me this content, yeah. this page or something. Please give me, exactly. And, that, and that's how you can think about it. When you type into that bar, you're just saying, please give me this piece of content. And that information goes through something called the domain name service, which, which is just, a way of taking that name and converting it into those fancy IP addresses that everybody's seen at some point where you're like, oh, your IP addresses, you know, this, you ever go to like myip.com or yeah, something like that? Yeah, just a bunch of numbers. Yeah. 
Yeah, and at the end of the day, that's that's sort of just like an address, like you would think of like your home address or something like that. It's the only way to route information somewhere as if, oh, well, how can we keep track of all these millions of people who want to put information out there in the world? Well, just like we can with like homes by giving people an address to route mail to, we can also give uh, websites or servers, as we'll find out, uh, an address that, that we can sort of link or forward our request to them so that they can send something back to us, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. And this is the internet. And this is sort of the internet in a nutshell, right? Like, there's so many pieces that go into this. Um, but yeah, that's sort of kind of the idea here. And that information gets received by the server. And the only thing that makes it a server is that it's always listening for requests. So when I type something into that bar and it sends that information going, I want Google.com's homepage, which we're all so familiar with, right? This is not, we're not sponsored by Google. I'm just, I'm just using it as an example because I think everybody kind of knows that, you know, Google logo and then the, 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 the web bar in the middle of the page. And like, all we're saying is give me Google's homepage. That Google.com gets transformed into the IP address that Google can be found at. The servers at Google receive that information go, oh, it looks like this person is looking for our homepage. And because of that, they send back some information, which your web browser is so kind to render and show you in some kind of way. So you're saying server here. And I remember before I started diving really deep into this, having this idea of servers. You know, People talk about, oh, our, all, all our data is on the servers at Facebook. And I've got this mental image of this giant uh, machine with blinking lights and it's, you're saying that a server doesn't have to be that. It's simpler. Yeah, uh, really a server is anything that is listening for a request. Frankly, you could be a server right now as you're just waiting for me to like ask you for something. No blinking lights. No I blinking lights. Server. Yeah, and, and when you talk about all your data being at Facebook, I think we know that that's, that's not true. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> too soon, too soon. Um, but yeah, so, so um, I, I think, yeah, we can't consider just a server, this giant machine of blinking lights. Anything can be a server as long as you're just waiting for a request. Think of a, 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 you know, a waiter or waitress at a restaurant, who are sometimes called servers, right? And, and they're just waiting around for you to request some food from them for them to bring it to the table. That's kind of an analogy here, which is like, we want to be able to make a request for some content over this wire via the magical internet at some point, we, which we'll get into at some point. Um, and then somehow you send me back this information, that food. What your web browser does, what Google Chrome does, what, what uh, Mozilla Firefox does, Safari, whatever browser you might be using, is taking that information, which comes back as a series of like letters and words, and takes it and transforms it into something visual on the page. It's, it's kind of interesting because we tend to make these requests for content through browsers, but we totally don't have to do that. We can use a whole bunch of other means. Uh, maybe you've seen those, you know, those like uh, hacker movies and, and shows and, and they all pop up this thing called the terminal, which is like that, you know, or DOS back in the day. It's like that, that little text editor kind of looking thing. Right, with uh, all the green matrix looking letters yeah. across it, right? <laughs> yeah. And you, you can totally make a request to a request. Remember, is the same thing as me just typing in an address in that URL bar at the top of your web browser. I can do that through, through this terminal, through this, through this, you know, matrix looking thing. And so the browser just gives us the capability of drawing it for us. It's just a good means of drawing it. And that's all it's doing. It's just the visual medium. That's exactly it. Using the internet. Yeah, exactly. For using the internet. Um, and, 
Um, the other thing that it does is like when we requested things from Google, our browser obviously can't just draw anything, right? Like it needs certain things to be able to draw it. And I think that's sort of one thing I'd like to fill in the link here is like you can't just have a server out there listening for these requests and then what it sends back is just like nothing. It needs to send back three main things for the browser to be able to properly render it on the page. Okay. Yeah. And what are those three things? That's a great question, Jeff. Uh, yeah. So um, I, the first thing to point out is that, like, let's think about that Google homepage because I think everybody kind of has this image in their mind. Okay. The sure. first thing that we need to send back whenever we're a server sending back information is actually HTML. HTML. Okay. Which stands for um, hyper uh, hypertext markup language. That's it. And and that's just a fancy way for saying content content. So when you look at a web page, anything that you physically see there on the page, if we think about that Google homepage for a second, the Google logo, that bar where you can type stuff into, that button, I'm feeling lucky, that everybody obviously uses all of the time, right? That is the content of the page and that's the HTML. That's the first thing we needed. But have you ever been in that situation where like, like you go to a website and it doesn't like load properly and like it doesn't like look right. It's sort of just like like this like black and white page with like blue links. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You're like yeah. Um, that's that's because there's no styles. There's nothing that the, the styles haven't been properly loaded. And so the second thing that a web page needs is some kind of like way of organizing the content. Oh, you know what? Let's not put that Google logo on the top left of the page. Let's put that in the center of the page. Right. So this this unstyled version with just the text and the blue links, sometimes when you have a slow connection, you'll see a little thing that says load as HTML, right? And you click on that, and that's usually when you see this unstyled thing. Yeah, right? yeah. So and that's all the HTML is. That's it. And, and, and that's kind of, of the idea is let's just send a bunch of text and render out that text. Um, and we'll get into kind of how this all started uh, in a little bit as well. But I just want to give you kind of a background on like, um, you know, the things that we need to be a web page. And the first thing that we need is content. And the second thing that we need are styles. How do we want to organize this thing? And that's known as CSS. The current version is CSS3. I think that's cascading style sheets. Cascading right? style sheets. And that's. Style sheets. Yeah. And so we'll talk a little bit about how that operates at some point as well, but we can understand conceptually now, oh, okay, if there were a way that we could describe some content, if there were a way that we could describe some styles, we're starting to imagine how a web page can be put together. But we're still missing one thing. What are we missing? Great question, Jeff. <laughs> that, that, and, and, and the thing that we're missing is the logic, the interactivity. How we do we type into that bar, but it starts to predict what our next, uh, uh, what we're going to say. I start typing CA and it knows cats because that's what everybody on the internet types, right? Obviously. I mean, that's what it's for. That's the internet is for cats. Um, which on a side note, we should talk about, uh, how, you know, Google a couple of years ago released uh, an unsupervised machine learning algorithm, which I'm sure we'll get into machine learning at a later topic. And it just got obsessed with cats. Just like it just scraped the internet, like no rules, and just it just became a cat bot uh, on its own, uh, <laughs> which is. <laughs> I think if an alien race visited Earth and just perused the internet for an hour or two, they would think that we were cat worshippers. You know, um, like these. I mean, maybe we are. Maybe that's that's really the purpose of the human race, just to 
to make funny cat videos. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> not surprising. Yeah, I think a lot of there's a lot of cat people out there, and I feel like cat people are like stronger willed yes. than dog people. I know that sounds like a tough statement, and I hope I'm not offending stronger anyone out there. Willed, yeah. Uh, being but, controversial here on the yeah on the first pilot episode, pilot episode being a little <laughs> controversial, but, but like we no, lose a lot of listeners because like people with dogs tend to have like a couple of dogs, but I feel like there are cat people out there who have like Horde. hordes of cats. cats, hordes. I don't even like I can't even quantify Small a armies. gross of cats, <laughs> a gross of cats. Um, anyway, okay, back to back to web pages. So there's sure. three things that we need. One content. That's HTML, mm-hmm. right? Two, we need to say where should this content be? What should the background color be? What co- font size should I use? We should describe not the content itself, but how the content looks and not CSS. And then the last thing, and sort of the hardest thing for people to wrap their head around, is the JavaScript, which is the interactivity of the web page. When I click this button, this thing opens or closes. When I do, when I move my mouse, this thing changes, right? Things that require interactivity or logic on the web page, those are controlled by JavaScript. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's sort of what full stack focuses on, right? Yeah. JavaScript. Yeah, and that sort of kind of gets us to why did I just say JavaScript? Why did I say that the browser takes HTML, CSS, and JavaScript? We've all heard of all of these other languages. Right, why not Java or Ruby or Python? Yeah, or and, and the short answer is you can't. No choice, you have no choice, Jeff. You can't, you can't write Python in the browser. You can't. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, you can't, you can't write Ruby in the browser. You can't um, really write Java anymore. Um, and those of you who are listening are probably like, well, what about those Java applications? Remember, who's played RuneScape, right? Applets. Applets, those Java applets. Remember the little Java loading icon? Yeah, no, no more. Um, gone, because JavaScript has somehow, via magic, <laughs> replaced it. Uh, and, and now, uh, as of 2020, you know, the last kind of standing survivor that contested JavaScript to be the language of the web browser was Flash. And Flash is going to be completely deprecated, Google Chrome announced, by 2020. Meaning they're not going to support it anymore as of 2020. Um, Not even deprecated, it's no longer supported as of 2020, which is uh, absolutely bananas. So really, as of 2020, we're not going to have any other options in the browser other than JavaScript, which really means that if you're planning on having a website for more than a year and a half, you really should only be working in JavaScript. So that's... The only choice now, the only game in town, if you want to build websites, yeah, got to know JavaScript. That's right, yeah. Do you want to give some background on, like, where JavaScript, like, why, first of all, like, is it, we should talk about the story of JavaScript, probably, and, like, yeah. like how, how did this, like, this is sort of, like, we're kind of giving you the end here. This is the end of the story, right? This is, like, what we're dealing with today. Spoiler alert. This is the spoiler alert. And now we're going to, like, pull some, like, M. Night Shyamalan kind of twist here and take a step backward and um, talk a little bit about maybe how this happened, how JavaScript got started. Um, And maybe you want to address that, kind of where did JavaScript come from? Sure. What's the like mystery or the story behind that? And then we could talk a little bit about like how it evolved to become the language of the web. Yeah, okay. Well, you got us started with the web and the idea that we have three things. We have content, we have styling, and we have interactivity, 
right? And so we have HTML for the content, CSS for the styling. And if you remember the web from, say, the early to mid-90s, that's kind of what most of it was. It was just a bunch of pages. You could look at text. I mean, the web was really invented as a way for mostly scientists and academics to just share their research with one another so that we'd have this big encyclopedia-like store of documents that could just link to each other. And instead of just reading a paper and seeing a word and thinking, oh, I don't know what that means, but maybe I'll look it up later, you could just click on the link and it would take you to another document that explained it, right? So we go from this idea of having all these static pages where there's not much going on, just a wall of text, maybe a couple pictures, and maybe you can color it now a little bit with some styling, to people wanting a little bit more, right? People wanted to write software that works in the browser. People wanted things to happen on your screen. You wanted to be able to click on a button and make something happen. You wanted to be able to have forms where you could input data. So I guess maybe we should talk about, in the early 90s, uh, this browser called Mosaic. Mm. It came out, of, uh, came out of a research project at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Pronouncing that correctly. Urbana Champagne. 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 Right. Yes, yes. My, my mistake. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so there was this browser called Mosaic. And it wasn't the very first web browser, but it was the first one that really emphasized a, a GUI, a graphical user interface, or, or GUI. And it also was the first one to have text and images displayed right in line with each other. You didn't have to click on something to open up an image in another pop up window. And a bunch of people that worked on this project decided this is the future, this is how the web should be. Uh, Mark Andreessen was one of the big names that worked on this project. And he kind of took a bunch of people on this project and moved out to California, Mountain View, California, where Google is now, and started a company to launch the first big commercial web browser. And that company soon became Netscape. Heard of so, it, yes. <laughs> yeah, if, if you were around in the 90s, if you were on the internets in the 90s, you probably used Netscape Navigator, yes. right? So after they had kind of put together this beta for a browser, this proof of concept, they got some users. They actually quickly became the most popular browser, the biggest name in the game. They decided that what they really wanted was to have a language which could interact with this content and change the styling and make things happen when users interacted with the page. <laughs> so one of the big candidates at the time was Java. Java came out in, I think it was 1995. It was, a, uh, it was supposed to be the next big thing to write software in the browser using these Java applets. Right? You would have these kind of embedded programs that you could put into a website, and that would be written in Java. And while they were kind of getting this to work, they decided that they needed some sort of glue language that would be able to interact with things on the page and kind of just wire the button up to something else happening. Right? They needed just a little scripting language to help out right. with all of the other heavy lifting that Java was going to be doing. Can you define that actually for some of our users, for some of our, our users, our listeners? Um, and and because and, I always hear this word scripting language being thrown around. Yeah. Um, and 
I think it's good that if we if we kind of clarify what that really means. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people kind of use it almost as a, a put down for languages. Like yeah. there are real programming languages, and then there are these scripting languages. And the right. scripting languages are just you know you write a few lines, it automates something that a human could do pretty simply by typing a few commands in. But now we can do it automatically behind the scenes. And JavaScript is a is a full featured, full fledged programming language. I mean, you can do pretty much anything with JavaScript that you could do in any other language. But it was originally conceived of as this idea of just taking a couple things in the browser, taking some content, and attaching some functionality to it. Just wiring things up. It's a, a glue language. Right? right. So that's how it was conceived. They brought this guy Brendan Eich into the fold there at Netscape in 1995. Originally with the idea, I think, that he would be setting up a way to use Scheme in the browser. Right, right, right. So this was a pure functional programming language. This would have been a really radical thing. But as they were trying to bring Java in, they decided, okay, what we really need is something that looks and feels a little bit more like Java. Scheme is way different right, than Java. Right. We want something that has the same kind of syntax, a lot of the same sort of functionality, some of this ability to do object-oriented programming, something I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. Definitely. So Brendan Eich, in the span of about 10 days, as the legend goes, put together a little prototype of a new programming language, which would become JavaScript. Well, at the time, I think they called it Mocha, was kind of its code name, probably a, a reference to Java, I guess. Right. right. And uh, at, at one point, it went by LiveScript, I think, in the very first release of right, Netscape right, right, that right. had this built into it. It was LiveScript, and then eventually they decided, hey, Java's popular. Yep. <laughs> and what we're really building is a glue language that's going to kind of support Java in the future. Let's jump on that train, right. that bandwagon there, and we'll just call it JavaScript. And that that always blows my mind that like people always like people are just diving into the program they're like is JavaScript sort of like Java? No, it literally has nothing to do with it other than the fact that like it has some syntactic similarities. Yeah. Few. They I mean, C-like languages. C-like braces yeah. and stuff like that, but yeah, they are pretty different. Yeah, um, and so so does my cousin who's in, who's <laughs> just got his braces. Oh, it's a terrible joke. Okay, but 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 <laughs> all right, let's let's maybe cut that one. Um, but 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 the point is, is that JavaScript got its name for no reason other than Java happened to be popular at the time, yeah. and it was this glue language just used for scripting. And right. that's where the name comes from, JavaScript. That's sort of a, a really good introduction to kind of th where where it where it first got started. I yeah, think. yeah. It, it kind of makes it sound like it's Java Lite, sort yeah. of. You know, JavaScript. It's not full Java, not real Java. It's just this little thing that kind of works like it. Yeah. But it is a totally separate language. And I've also heard people say Java is to JavaScript as car is to carpet. Right, you know, right. Don't yeah. really have any cars to carpet. <laughs> it's just they share part <laughs> of the cars same word. to carpet. That's right. good. Yeah. Um, so I think this kind of leads us into you know we talked about JavaScript being uh, you know this full fledged language, but it really at first wasn't. It really wasn't. It had the pieces sort of, but it really didn't have the the industry 
um, you know, uh, support. It didn't have the focus of developers at the time. Everyone at the beginning sort of saw it as this scripting language. Yeah. And I think the first major thing to look at is I think it was either 1997 or 1996 was uh, sort of the release of ECMAScript. And I think that's something kind of right. good to talk about. Now, people think of ECMAScript as this like entirely other language, but it's really not. What ECMA, I like to think of ECMAScript as like sort of like the Oxford Dictionary of English. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's sort of like when you talk English, when you language, when you when language, language it up, um, you, you 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 use common speak. You don't follow exquisite Oxford practices, maybe unless you're like. You know, aha. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Aha. Like that's not really. You don't necessarily use the proper grammar and. Thank you like for helping time, me talk. Right? Yeah. Uh, good. So this is great. Um. So. I studied in the Oxford speak the blah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, not really. But. Yeah, and so ECMAScript is sort of like this Oxford dictionary. That's like here are all of the things that you need to do to be considered JavaScript. And I think that's really uh, uh, interesting. And, and the kind of the reason for this was like, you know, we talked about Netscape, we talked about Mosaic, we talked about some of these browsers that came about early on, um, and they all sort of had their own implementation of this glue, of this binding thing. They had a lot of similarities. It followed very similar um, syntax in terms of JavaScript, but some of the differences between these browsers were very significant early on. Um, Definitely. It, yeah, and so like before it got out of hand, um, you know, the what was it the Internet Engineering Task Force put together this this uh, was it the uh, I forget who it was who put this uh, together, um, but basically they decided that they needed a standard for all of these browsers to start to follow, and that's where this ECMAScript came from. Right. Well, when when Netscape released their browser with JavaScript at this point. People saw it and said, "Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, I want some of that." Right? <laughs> Especially Microsoft saw that in yeah. Netscape, and they thought, "Wow, if we don't get something like that in our browsers, we're going to fall way behind. We're going to lose this browser war." That they were trying to take market share away from Netscape Navigator as much as they could. So the engineers at Microsoft were tasked with essentially reverse engineering JavaScript, and they built their own version. They called JScript real original, right? And it was almost identical, like you said, but there were some differences and there wasn't any kind of standard. So if people were writing code to run in a browser, people were writing programs that were supposed to run in, say, either uh, Internet Explorer or Netscape Navigator, you kind of had to know these two different dialects of sort of the same language, but not quite. Yeah. Right? So there was a need for standardization. And, uh, and this gets into what you were talking about with ECMA, the standards body, and, and ECMAScript. Yeah. Right? So right. people now probably hear if they're starting to dive into programming or if they're involved in JavaScript a little bit, you hear these terms tossed around like ES6, ES2015. <laughs> these have been the hot things for the last week. So what's, Sounds what's like a new ES, car. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it keeps changing. Right. right. Every every year or two, it's yeah. like, oh, there's a new ES 2016, ES 2017, what have you. So that's that's ECMAScript. Right. right. Yeah, I think, 
And, and, and that sort of led, uh, so, so sort of putting the standard in place, I think, was one of the first things that, that JavaScript needed to start to proliferate, to start to become, OK, well, now if this board is supporting it and saying that this is the language of the web, the glue of the web, if at least, you know, um, then, then, then clearly we should start to pay some attention to this. And I think that what really started changing the, the, the browser world was around about 2000, where we saw the beginning of like Web 2.0, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and no, it wasn't like a new version of the internet got released. It wasn't like they were like, all right, time, we've, internet one's been great. Let's take <laughs> it down. Uh, it's Y2K. No, it, it's, it's, it wasn't a new version of the internet. It was this idea that like, wait a second, now that we have this, this like logic that's embedded in our, in our page. Remember, just a reminder, our HTMLs, our content, our CSSs, our styling. But because we have JavaScript that can interact with the page, we can do a bunch of things behind the scenes without people even knowing it. Think about like the last time you were looking at your like Gmail inbox, for example, and you were like browsing your emails and all of a sudden a new one popped in. You didn't have to refresh your page to do that. That's because JavaScript behind the scenes was checking for you, did you have any new emails? And of course, the logistics of that would take us a little bit of time to get into, but this was sort of the concept. Web pages were starting to show signs that they weren't just this static web page, this article kind of that you were talking about. Like, just this web page would show you some words. If you wanted to go somewhere, you'd click it. And, and we started to see this websites kind of run with this idea, which was, let's go ahead and make this page feel more dynamic, feel more dynamic. And we saw this in the early 2000s. I think that capability was the first time people went, oh, wow, OK. Yeah, JavaScript definitely being built into these browsers changed the way that we view browsers and their capabilities and even web pages. And you started to feel like the beginning of these applications on the browser. It wasn't just oh, uh, like reading an encyclopedia online. It started to feel like this moving device, this page that you could use for different purposes. And that was really, really, really neat. Yeah, definitely. And, and so what's happening with Java in the meantime, right? Because the idea was that JavaScript would be this glue. It would do a couple things here and there. But the heavy lifting would be in these Java, Java applets, right? So did Java just disappear? At this point, Java was still competing pretty well. Like, we saw Java applets come about. People made a lot of games on the web. I, began, I believe Flash began around this time in the early 2000s. Um, and, and all of these applets still existed. But they sort of required you to leave the native browser environment. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it was you were existing in the browser's world, which kind of gave it a different feel. Sure, we could use a web page to load in this Java applet, but once we were in that applet, all of the coding was left to the developers in that Java applet. Um, and so as Web 2.0 started to kind of show the capabilities of pure JavaScript, the need for Java and these other languages started to begin to fade. And I think that's sort of like, what was the next step in the line of JavaScript becoming the language of the web, you know? Mm. Um, but again, we still had these difficulties because browsers still implemented things differently, right? Like one thing we might consider is remember HTML is the content, but how many times have you clicked a button on a page and it maybe makes some more content appear? 
right? This sort of links this concept of interactivity and content, right? Imagine you're on a travel site and it's like show more and you click a show more button, the page doesn't refresh, but like somehow text expands on the page. Right. JavaScript had a play in sort of adding or removing or touching the DOM, this document object model, which we'll get into later, which is essentially a fancy word for the content underlying HTML. Yeah. And so um, what, what, we, what we started to see here was this, this um, um, difference among browsers that ECMAScript couldn't maintain, which was the differences on not only JavaScript level, but on how JavaScript interacted with HTML how JavaScript interacted with CSS. And these standards were very, very, very difficult to meet. Now, if you were a developer and you wanted to design one of these Web 2.0 applications for Internet Explorer users, you could do so, but you'd have to first check to see if your user was using Internet Explorer mm. and have a set of code working for them using Internet Explorer. Right. You know, um, At this point, you're talking about early 2000s, right? So Internet Explorer had kind of won the first round of the browser wars, killed off Netscape, right? right? But then from the ashes of Netscape came Firefox, right. right? Mozilla grew out of the old Netscape That's organization, right. and uh, and there was sort of a second set of browser wars brewing, right? We had Internet Explorer, we had Firefox, Opera, I guess, was around at that point, right? I don't know if Safari had had hit the scene just yet. I don't really remember, uh, but yeah, I think the three big players at this point were um, Internet Explorer, Netscape had lost a ton of market share, um, and Mozilla Firefox. Um, sort of came out of the dust here and was this new browser that was built on uh, performance and sort of like, um, and it had optimized for these things uh, much like different than we've seen before. And yeah, so, tabbed browsing, tab browsing, Firefox uh, sort of invention, right? Yep. It was we open all, source, which was pretty radical at the time. Right. Open source, that was, and, and open source, for those of you uh, who aren't really familiar with that term, simply means that it's um, free and open to contribute to. That people, you, yourself, you have an idea of something that Firefox should implement, you can go ahead and like make a request to the central team there uh, to go ahead and make that change. Right. And, and if you want to see the code that's, that's making Firefox work, you can see it. It's, yeah open to the public, essentially. Yep, and it's, it's, it's really kind of neat. Um, but it was annoying for developers at the time, because if I wanted to write an application, a web application, and, and I'm going to keep saying web application instead of website, because at this point, they started to feel like these dynamic applications, not this web page, not this like static site. They were, they were able to be moved and played with, and, and that felt really, really, really um, uh, modern. Yeah, Gmail, as yeah. you mentioned, right? This wasn't just some text on a page, and you said you didn't even have to refresh it. It was like you could do everything from in your browser just like any other email application, just like uh, Outlook from Microsoft, right? Or uh, what was it? Thunderbird, right? Was oh, the other, geez, yeah, Thunder, other thing Thunderbird. people were using oh. here. Yeah, yeah. So, good times. Yeah, it's apps, right? Applications, web applications were really kind of starting to hit the scene with things like Gmail. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I interrupted. Go no, on. no, I, I think that's great. That's a really good addition here. And I think that it led, the, it, it sort of, this ran into another problem. Something that ECMAScript couldn't by itself handle. Because now we were getting into things like controlling the content on the page. And how that content on the page existed. And how JavaScript interacted with that content wasn't something that was directly under ECMAScript's domain. So about 2006 came this unbelievable library. People think of it as its own language, but it's not. 
it came the proliferation of something called jQuery. Mm. jQuery allowed a standard process of communicating to web browsers. Here was the concept. They said, hey, look, this is difficult. You got to write things one way if you're talking to Internet Explorer. You got to write things another way if you're using Mozilla, if you're using Opera. What you're going to do is you're going to write your JavaScript inside of our jQuery library. Hmm. And if you do that, we guarantee that we will handle the browser differences for you. You adopt jQuery and we'll take care of the differences between uh, Mozilla, between Opera, between Internet Explorer, until they can get their butts together. Right. Yeah. So ECMO had provided this sort of standards body for JavaScript. JavaScript was the same everywhere, but the way that you had to use it in browsers to implement different things, uh, to implement the same thing in these different environments, that wasn't standardized yet. And you're saying jQuery came along and sort of layered on some universal standards on top of that. That's right. jQuery basically provided a means of taking care of these browser differences that necessarily weren't required by ECMAScript. In fact, it wasn't under ECMAScript's domain. Right. And this was really what I consider the, the probably the one of the three biggest events in JavaScript's history. Because now we had a language that worked across all browsers. You have one or two developers working on a web application using jQuery, and it will work across all browsers. That was incredible. What did this lead to? Well, frankly, we got to toss the garbage Internet Explorer, right? <laughs> Internet Explorer, although in the early 90s was like, way better than Netscape, its soon competitor Google Chrome and its current con competitor Mozilla Firefox were so much better. But Mozilla Firefox couldn't really gain that much market share until developers started developing their applications for Mozilla, started developing their applications for Opera. And if you were a small team of developers, you couldn't afford to do this. So now with, the with, with jQuery's presence, Developers were like, wow, I can write this one thing and it will work everywhere. So now you as a user got to choose the browser that was most comfortable for you. You didn't have to use Internet Explorer because, well, it was the only thing that works. Right. So yeah. jQuery really kind of leveled the playing field for some of these other browsers. At the time, before that came out, if you were writing a small web application, you were a little startup with a small budget, you were probably just targeting Internet Explorer because that's what everybody was using, right? Yeah. But you didn't necessarily have the time to write your application two or three different ways for people who were using other browsers. But jQuery allowed you to write one code base, write everything the same way, and it just works in all these different environments. And I, Yeah, and it, honestly, it's kind of mind-blowing because at this point, people are looking at JavaScript and being like, I don't know how small this thing is. Like, look, we're seeing all these web applications pop up. We're seeing the beginning of things like Google Maps. Remember, I, yeah. I don't remember the year that came out, but that was like, whoa. That was like the first time, I, I don't know, you, you all remember Google Maps. The first time people were looking at Google Earth, Google Maps, people were like, mm, whoa. Google Earth, yeah. That was an application. That wasn't just a website. That thing had a real dynamic feel to it. And I think that this standardization, this ability to work across browsers, is what allowed us to the probably the, the second biggest event leading up to JavaScript becoming this, you know, at this point I think we can we can say that it was becoming the language of the web. 
Um, yeah, these Google Maps and applications that you're talking about here, these weren't Java applets or Flash apps, right? This was just JavaScript that was building these things. Right. But at this point, all of it was browser side. And that's really important. That's a really important distinction that I think we, we should really make here, which is that this was what's we, what we call as developers the front end. This is browser side. This is what the user sees when they go to Google.com, right? This is what do you view in your browser, the front end. That was JavaScript. But the back end, that is, when I made that request to Google.com, the thing that thought about how to respond to me, the server, the thing that thought about how to respond to me, the back end, mm. could be written in anything. Even to this day, you can still see, we see a whole bunch of different backend options, right? Yeah. We can see, we can write that in anything. We could write that in, in Google's language Go. We could write it in, in, in RALS, we could, which is Ruby, right? We yeah. can write it in Django, which is Python. We can write it in Spring, which is Java. Right, and, and Java, that's kind of where that started to go, right? As applets on the web started to die down a little bit, at the same time, Java was becoming one of the world's most popular languages for writing server-side backend right. code. Right, right. If you can't, if you can't win here, let's pivot. And I think they did a really good job sure. of pivoting. Yeah. And as we know, and maybe we'll get to in a, a later talk, Spring became a really, really, really uh, a big player in terms of uh, web frameworks. In addition to that, you know, we also see Java Play and, and uh, the interactivity between Java and Scala. And, and these are some of the things that we can, we can kind of talk about uh, later on. But, but at this point, JavaScript was winning, was becoming the language of the web. And jQuery certainly played a large contribution to that because now we didn't need to worry about browser differences. JavaScript sort of just always worked as long as jQuery kept up to date. And that was really, really, really neat. So if you were writing code for the front end, sort of half of our stack here, right? We have front end in the browser and we have back end on some server somewhere. So if you were writing code for the front end, you were writing JavaScript at this point, probably jQuery. Right. right? But we only had sort of half stack JavaScript. So there was right. no such thing as, as full stack JavaScript. Yeah. And we would have been half stack Academy, frankly, at that no, time, maybe. Not, uh, probably not. not they, nearly that's, as catchy. That's, that's not as catchy, half stack Academy. Um, Makes me think of pancakes. Yeah, I could definitely. You don't really want a half stack of pancakes. <sighs> I would love like a pancake. Right now, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd take half a pancake. Do you what what kind of pancakes do you like? Do you like like chocolate chip or do you like plain? Are you a good plain old pancake I'm, I'm guy? I'm kind of old fashioned. I like the, I like a regular old buttermilk pancake. Sometimes blueberries though. You don't like a sugar coma with your pancakes. Sometimes yeah. I mean I I'm not too picky with pancakes. Yeah. If if somebody's gonna make pancakes for me, I'll eat them. The history of pancakes is something that we, we should talk about at some point. It's very interesting how IHOP kind of we could okay we should all right let's get back to the JavaScript. So anyway, no, tell, tell your IHOP. No, I mean I mean it's it's just kind of interesting that IHOP sort of ran with this. This is what I this is I could completely be wrong. This could be like a fairy tale that someone told me. So, sure. So, but from my understanding, IHOP ran with pancakes because the production of like um, not dough but batter. Like this batter was much cheaper than that of toast and bread. And so like being really? able to serve like eggs and bacon with pancakes was much cheaper, much more delicious, sugary, but also, like I said, cheaper and easier for IHOP to produce on a massive scale, 
right? All you need to do is make some batter, throw it on a, uh, on a thing, flip it over, and voila, it looked like bread, but it was much, much, much cheaper than bread. Brilliant. Um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, someone should definitely fact check me on that IHOP story. Uh, I'm going to say that's a 100% verified fact. <laughs> absolutely gospel. Uh, so just great, great. Uh, <laughs> So we're talking about jQuery, and we're talking about sort of how the front end um, at this point was starting to show signs of truly being uh, just JavaScript. In fact, Java at this point was sweating a little bit and pivoted to becoming sort of the premier backend language uh, while they had the chance. Great. Um, and of course, there's, there's more that goes into that story. But um, at this point, this really set the stage for 2008. And in 2008, um, we, one of the biggest players joined the browser game, and that was Google Chrome. Google Chrome came out in 2008 and blew the world away because they had something that was better than anything ha that had tons, times, multiple, like uh, magnitudes better. Mm. I told orders you, of I'm, magnitude better. Orders of magnitude better um, than previous browsers. And the main reason for that was performance, was performance. And Google Chrome was able to achieve this because they built this really, really powerful engine. Engine. So those of you who might have a background in programming, um, those of you who might not, um, at the end of the day, the computer, the machine that you're probably listening to this on or watching this on um, is a computer, whether it be a phone or an actual computer. Um, it actually only understands like binary, ones and zeros, these electrical impulses at a really small level. And at the end of the day, all of the words that we type in code need to somehow be converted into these machine signals, these operations for the computer to understand. And so we can convert this in two different major ways. And until really JavaScript, and JavaScript's V8 engine even, like the main way of doing this was via a process known as compiling, which always has to happen. But what compiling is, is let's take this code that sort of looks more English-like and convert it down into these machine signals so that the computer can actually run it. What this means is that if there's any errors in your code or if you wrote something that can't be converted into a machine signal, your code will let you know right away, like, hey, this is not going to work. You can't compile this thing. Right. So it used to be where you'd write some code, it would compile down, and then that is the thing you would actually execute on your computer. You would never, like, execute your code in its current form. You'd always compile it and then run it. Um, I shouldn't say always. This was, the, this was the general pattern of the compiling process. Languages that are compiled work like this. You had to get it down to ones and zeros somehow, right? Something that computers can understand. They only really speak one language, and that's binary. Exactly, saying. exactly. And, that, and I couldn't have said it better myself. Like, that's all that these computers speak at the end of the day. But the V8 engine, and other engines that had existed before this point, of course, but the V8 engine, uh, which was uh, built in C and C++ and even some JavaScript, um, its responsibility was to take JavaScript code and in real time, compile it down into um, uh, into machine code. That was incredible. Like so, like you'd be able to write code, and as that code was executing, 
this engine was sort of listening and reading that code and it would convert that code down into machine impulses, machine signals in real time. And the Google Chrome engine known as V8, not to be confused with the vegetable juice, um, um, was, was much better at doing this than anything that we had seen before. Hmm. Yeah. So when you say performance, I think is the word that you used before, you're not talking about some sort of concert. You're talking about it's fast, right? right? I'm talking about like the v a verb, adjective, 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 per adjective. Perform. Well, the perf verb. to perform is a verb. Right. Uh, the performance of something a noun, I is it right? If some no, that would be like it is performant. No, that's an adjective. That's an adjective. Right. It, if something is perf if something is performant, then it's an adjective. So performance is an adjective. Performance is a noun. The performance of something. Oh, I... it doesn't matter. Okay, We're whatever. This, We're, this, this is not an English podcast. podcast. <laughs> whatever. Okay, so it was performant. Okay, the point is the V8 engine was very performant, Jeff. Right. And it's fast. it was very fast. It made JavaScript fast. It made JavaScript right. fast. So Up now, until this point, people complained because JavaScript was not nearly as fast as performant as efficient as a lot of other languages that you could write code in, but you're saying Google Chrome and this V8 engine that it was built on top of, that came and changed that. It God. made JavaScript fast. Am I so glad I have you here? Because <laughs> that, I couldn't have said it better myself. Again, like, you, you really kind of hit it there, which is that, that it really, now, JavaScript was, jQuery gave us the tools to make it cross-platforming. It gave us the tools to exist in all browsers and have one set of code that worked for all browsers. And that was fantastic. But again, performance wasn't there. It wasn't there. It wasn't able to compete with Java applets. It wasn't really able to complete, compete with Flash applications. Mm. So we needed a way of improving performance. And so Google with billions of dollars was able to create something really cool. I don't know if it actually cost, it probably, I mean, they could just pour in whatever money liquid sure. they wanted. Doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't it's matter, Google. it's Google, right? And so they created something absolutely incredible that changed the game. And it forced other, uh, you know, uh, browsers to, you know, throw their head in the game, right? Mozilla came out with Spider Monkey, mm. right? And, uh, you yep. know, we saw, we saw big, big, big improvements of browser performance across the board. But, um, this was in itself, I think 2008 was the year that we saw, we saw Google Chrome really um, um, make JavaScript this language of the front end. And it solidified that concept. But something even bigger happened to JavaScript in 2009. You know? Um, 2009, um, there was this guy named Ryan Dahl. Um, and uh, one day, as it goes, here's the, here's the story. One day, um, he's giving a conference, and he's, he's really nervous. He's not, he's not like a, a, an on-stage performer. He, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tech guy that you would imagine the most stereotypical tech guy in a cave kind of look to him. And he got up there um, at this conference and, 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 and started talking about, oh, I took Google's V8 engine. He's like really quiet into the mic. I took Google's V8 engine and I, uh, I put it on my computer. And uh, I attached these other things to it and uh, now you can write JavaScript on your computer. And he just says it like so casually. And everyone in the audience is like hunched over like, what? Does anyone hear what this guy is saying right now? 
He put JavaScript on his computer. Let's take a step back. Before this moment, you could only write JavaScript in the browser. That was the only environment in which JavaScript worked. Right? You couldn't like write it on your own machine because that engine, which was used to run and execute JavaScript, didn't exist on your machine. So Ryan Dahl took that and stuck it on his computer. So it wasn't confined to a browser environment where it's just talking to like these texts and buttons and images that's created by HTML. You're saying now it's in a, a separate environment. It's been unboxed, sort of, and it can touch other things on your computer, like uh, like files on your computer, right? Yeah. Things that the browser doesn't natively have access to because it's a contained resource inside of the Google Chrome environment. By putting JavaScript on the computer, by putting this engine on the computer, by putting this environment on the computer, on your actual machine, it was able to have access to all of your computer's resources, files, your file system, um, other applications on your computer. It gave you this ability to start building applications that didn't just exist on the web, but also on your machine. And by having access to the machine, we could do like what any other language could do on your machine, build a server. Right, OK. So it has access to your file system, you said, and all the things that your computer can do on its own. But you can also connect it to a network. right? You can also hook it up to the internet. Right. And now this allows what? So this sort of allowed JavaScript to now take its own form on a computer. You could build you know, your own applications that existed for the desktop. But more importantly, and probably the biggest thing to take away from this, was that now you could build applications that would actually be on the web on the server side. You could build an application whose entire responsibility was to sit up there and listen, like any web browser would, right? Sit there and listen for requests that come in, just like Google Server did in our initial example when we typed in google.com to our address bar. Now we can be on the side of Google listening for requests, processing those requests, and sending back a response. In JavaScript. In JavaScript. And that was the craziest thing. And now we saw the completion of that. We saw this, this, this movement from the early 90s through 2009 and the release of Node, which allowed JavaScript to finally become a full-stack language. I said it. Full, yeah. said full stack. Yeah, a full <laughs> he said stack. The secret word. <laughs> but this is full dash stack. Full right? dash Both stack. Both sides yeah. of the stack. It was in the front end. It was half stack JavaScript. Right. Now with Node.js in 2009, we have the ability to write back end or server side JavaScript, and now we've got the full stack. Yeah. Both back end and and front end. And by the way, those of you listening, if you if you haven't seen the release of Ryan Dahl's Node.js talk, I strongly encourage you to watch it because it is just unbelievable. It felt in, in di it, I don't know if this is like overstating its importance in, in the history of technological development, but I felt very similarly watching that as I did when Steve Jobs held up the first iPhone. Mm. You know, like that moment of the first iPhone really changed the way that we saw mobile smartphones, right? It was I, a pivotal moment. It was extremely pivotal. And the release of Node.js finally closed the loop, allowed JavaScript to no longer be 
at any level considered a scripting language. Of course, we couldn't change the name because you know uh, that would be very bad for price. Right. Hashtag but branding. Hashtag right. branding. Um, and so we needed. We we kept the name, but now we had the ability to code the full stack in JavaScript, and that's really what we're going to be diving into here. Let's kind of just summarize what we've talked about in the sure. last uh, in the last you know forty five minutes an it shouldn't hour. Shouldn't be hard. It's just what. 20, 25 years worth of history compressed yeah. into, what, where are we? 45 minutes now, maybe yeah. an hour? Yeah, and, and there's so much more yeah. detail that we could go into here. But the, the main thing to take away is this. Look, any user who types into their URL bar is making a request. When you make that request, it gets transformed from that domain name to an IP address. That IP address is sort of like an address on an envelope. It says, where is this thing going? Your IP, your your internet provider will go ahead and take that uh, address and route you to that person, sort of like the mail carrier carrying your letter. They will then receive that thing as a request. That request itself, right, has a bunch of information like where it came from and all of this other junk, right? Google goes ahead and says, or whoever got routed to is listening. That thing that's listening, that's a server. At this point, the server, and even today, can be written in almost any language, really any language at all. Including JavaScript. Including JavaScript as of 2009, right? So we could write that language in Java, JavaScript, Python, Ruby, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. okay? And that server's job is to listen for that request, do something with that request, and give us back a response. So when we get back that response, we need three major things to draw it in our web browser. Those three major things are HTML, the content on the web page, CSS, the styles and the look and the design of the web page, and then JavaScript, which is not up for debate anymore. It's no longer an option. If you want interactivity or logic on your web page, you must write JavaScript. So even if you feel that you want to write a different server-side language, even though Node.js is incredibly performant and has a lot of advantages that some other uh, web frameworks do not provide. Um, that's up to you. But when it comes to the browser, you don't have a choice. You must use JavaScript. So if you like Ruby and you want to use something like Rails as your server-side framework for web development, you can do that. Great. Fine. You're prerogative. You're but <laughs> you also have to use at least a little bit of JavaScript on the front end. And more and more, it seems like these websites, I mean, like you said, they're applications. They're not just, oh, click a button and something happens. There's a lot going on, right? It's just as complicated as some of the native programs that you would run on your machine or uh, on your phone, on your computer, your desktop, what have you, right? right. All just in the browser. So yeah. when you want to build an actual website, a web app for the modern day, you have to have quite a bit of JavaScript in there. That's right. And, and that's how we saw the, these proliferations of, you know, and we'll get into this in the future, these giant front-end web frameworks. You know, we, you yeah. know, jQuery was great for a long time, but it was simply just a wrapper around this vanilla JavaScript. You know, we wanted more advanced applications. You know, you, you, you ever use Spotify in the web browser, even Gmail, right? You, you click from inbox to drafts. It's not like the page refreshes itself. It's sort of like it just retransforms or redesigns. But you don't see your like page flash or page refresh. Right. We're starting to see these single page applications. Yeah. And that's just because all this JavaScript logic is getting wrapped up 
and 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 written in such a way that we can like represent all of the different ways that our page could look via JavaScript. That's the proliferation of you know Angular, React, Backbone. We saw early on, right? And Vue, yeah, of course. Vue is a big one right now. Yeah, yeah. but React is kind of the dominant one. React is still the, the dominant one in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, and I think that React's dominance, you know, maybe I'm biased here. I, I think it's it's pretty strong right now also. You know, we're seeing React Native blow up in the mobile world. It's very mm -hmm. similar. Um, but these are things we could talk about, you know, on another day. I, sure. I, I kind of just wanted to to kind of over, uh, you know, shadow kind of like the, the, the spectrum, the frame of which we're going to be talking about things over the, the, the next... Um, so many podcasts. And I think that that's really important is that we now have a good understanding of like this idea of making a request from our browser, a server sort of listening for a response, generating something back, and how we can view that thing. And the underlying mechanism of logic and interactivity that we're going to be focusing on here is JavaScript. Um, and at Fullstack, we use Fullstack JavaScript, where our front end is JavaScript, of course, and our back end is using Node.js's, um, you know, JavaScript as well, um, which was, which is absolutely incredible. It's been fun. All right, well, let's let's keep doing what we're doing. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, I'm Corey Greenwald. Jeff Bass. And we'll see you later. Check out FullStackAcademy.com. Take care.